0: Thank you, Rich. We're reminded uh, with Rich's prayer and his comments about the incredible legacy of missions that we have in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And it's something that we should never take for granted, never take lightly, and in this world where technology has brought everybody together from around the world, we have such a unique opportunity to share the gospel and uh, it's just amazing. So let's not be slack about that and I appreciate for you as a church, Front Range Alliance Church, I appreciate your, commission, your commitment to missions and your heart. It's pretty amazing. So I thank you for that. This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, and I have titled this Through Many Tribulations, which is a phrase lifted from the passage itself as the apostles go through some very difficult times. But the word is spread and you kind of have both going alongside together. If you observe in a passage, you'll notice that stoning, the idea of stoning someone, occurs a couple of times. We will get to that. The diamond idea is not technically in a passage, but uh, I was reading the other day in the BBC. they had a fascinating article on where diamonds come from, and especially the purest diamonds, and we're talking 200 miles below the surface, uh, but what creates a diamond, including seawater and things like that, it was fascinating. But I thought, when God wants to mold his saint, male or female, what does he use? Heat and pressure. That's what it takes to mold someone. What we want is discipleship and glorification of God without heat and pressure. But that's not the way it works. And I I know if if you've been around in life for a while, you have been, most of you, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's not easy. There are difficult times. But it's that heat and pressure that God uses to cause us to be more like Christ. In fact, it's a great illustration we used to use and walk through the Bible uh, that they may still use. But uh, when a jeweler is refining gold, what the jeweler will do is melt the gold because it's got an apparently low melting point. But they'll melt the gold. But when they do that, you've got the gold there in the mold. And there's dross or impurity on top. So what they'll do is they'll scrape the impurity off the top. And how does the jeweler know when he or she is finished with purifying the gold? And the answer is, when the jeweler can look down and see his or her face in the gold, then the gold is refined. When God looks down on your life and he sees his face instead of yours, then the refining is taking effect. And so I think about this because I think of the pressure on the disciples and the abuse and the persecution, and yes, the stoning, and with that kind of pressure, it produced diamonds of the faith. And so that's the theme that I want to to see today. We'll see that in just a moment. I also want to share with you, uh, next Sunday, we're going to be in that fascinating Jerusalem council passage of Acts 15, and I need to give you a heads up on what's going to happen next Sunday because it's going to be a little different. Uh, It's something that we're trying, because next Sunday is the potluck, right? And when you have potluck, we get round tables and we have the tables out for you to eat on, right? And so we're going to do that. And by the way, Delbert, yes, yes. The answer is yes on a carrot cake. Your church membership is at stake. I'm just saying. (laughs) But uh, we're going to have the round tables. But here's the twist. The round tables will actually be in this room instead of the other room. And that means that our service will be with round tables next Sunday. Now, this doesn't mean we're doing it all the time, so don't freak out. But you will see next Sunday, we've got a couple of things that I think will really help make Acts 15 come alive. You will see how well that will work with the passage on Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. So I'm just giving you a heads up, but please still come. And the title there is that mankind may seek the Lord, which is a phrase out of that passage. And that's really what it's all about. So I'm excited to get into the content of Acts 15 next week. Uh, Then after that, Acts 16, the Macedonian vision, the leap of the faith, and then uh, Acts 17, the marketplace of ideas. When Paul talked to the people in Athens, he had the different philosophies there, and often they were opposing philosophies, but it's similar to what we face today. So I want to take that passage, teach that passage, and bring out some things that might be helpful today in our world of the marketplace of ideas, especially in an age where on the one hand we want to be hedonistic and on the other hand it's not working it's not working so there's this frenzy we have and we'll get into that later but anyway uh so this morning what i want to do to start is last week i showed you a video on the alliance i have about i think it's a four minute video today it's a different video on the christian missionary alliance this will flesh out practically some of the work that's being done around the world and so we're going to show that now so let me launch the video And, um, excuse me just a second, we'll go to full screen, and here we go.
1: The Alliance was born out of a passion for Jesus and a heart for lost people. We are a Christ-centered Acts 1-8 family
2: that believes that all people should have the opportunity to hear the good news of salvation.
1: Christ is our foundation and the local church our home. From the local church, we make disciples who understand God's calling to become more like Jesus and to share the hope we have in Him.
2: God's Word is alive and at work in us. His Holy Spirit transforms us, spurring us on to love and good deeds.
1: Over 130 years ago, This same reality was stirring in the heart of Pastor Albert Benjamin Simpson. As he reached out to immigrant dock workers in New York City, his burden for lost people grew.
3: Simpson rallied a small group of believers around a common vision to reach the unreached, unaware that they were paving the way for future generations of Alliance
1: work. Pioneer missionaries to Africa made significant sacrifices,
2: Some gave their lives, planting seeds that would one day blossom into a vibrant church movement.
1: Supporters back home sold their most precious belongings in order to fund the work, and an alliance was born.
3: Today, there are more than 2.3 million Alliance believers in Africa.
1: Throughout the world, 6.3 million Christ followers worship in more than 22,000 Alliance fellowships.
2: Our heart for the nations has resulted in the U.S. Alliance becoming one of the most diverse evangelical churches in America.
1: More than 2,000 congregations worship in 37 languages. Many immigrants to the U.S. who were embraced, discipled, and equipped for ministry by Alliance churches have since returned to their home cultures with a burden for the lost. Local Alliance churches provide the foundation for our worldwide mission through prayer and sacrificial giving to the Great Commission Fund. Since its
3: founding, our North American Family of Churches has launched over 8,000 missionaries into more than 80 nations.
2: Worldwide, Alliance hospitals and clinics, radio stations, and schools proclaim the good news. In the United States, institutes of higher education prepare believers for kingdom service.
3: Alliance camps and retirement communities make disciples across generations.
1: With a passion for lost people, the Alliance family continues to expand its reach into areas of our world where there is little or no access to the gospel. This can often mean results come slowly, but we trust that God will bring in the harvest as He has in generations before.
2: Our commitment to reaching the world for Christ remains strong. Our global team of more than 700 workers is trained in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Long-term alliance workers labor to see healthy, self-replicating churches established. Short to midterm workers come alongside U.S. and international alliance ministries.
3: Bringing needed skills while shaping a new generation of kingdom-minded believers.
1: We are creative and nimble, using our resources wisely in order to have the greatest impact.
2: Because of their professional expertise, Alliance business people have gained access to many countries that are closed to the gospel.
1: In cultures where written communication is not readily embraced, we use oral storytelling as a means to share the good news in ways that rapidly spread from village to village.
3: Compassion and Mercy Associates, or KAMA, is the Alliance's relief and
1: development arm. KAMA workers focus on holistic ministry partnering with churches and communities to meet the physical and spiritual needs of people ravaged by poverty, disease, war, and natural disaster.
2: As we find new ways to bring Jesus to our neighborhoods and the nations, our message remains unchanged. We come from diverse backgrounds, but are drawn together by our desire to see all people find new life in Jesus.
1: Each of us plays a unique role in seeing Christ's love transform our world. United in His love. And empowered by His
3: Spirit.
2: We pray.
1: We give. We love.
2: We proclaim Jesus.
1: We are family.
2: We are the Alliance.
0: That's awesome. So just to let you know, you're a part of a large community around the world, and God has really used it. Uh, Speaking of the Alliance, I want to make sure that you're aware enough of some of the people involved, as well as the dynamics, um, because you just realize that a lot of times we don't know. So this is John Stumbo. He is the president of the CNMA, and they are out of his office now, not here anymore in metro columbus ohio so that's john and uh, he's a great guy and uh, had a chance to interact with him in omaha a few months ago and then our district superintendent is kent sovine and he is out of omaha uh, that's where their office is and that's his wife jamie and we keep in uh, close contact with kent he's been helping us in terms of the search and we've been dialoguing with him on that and other things so uh, i just want to let you know that's who Uh, Our friends are in the denomination, and uh, we also, you know, Cam, at some point in time, I'd like to get a presentation on the Orchard Foundation, maybe just for a few minutes, if you can do that. I think that'd be really good. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I don't care who does it, but somebody. Uh, But anyway, the Orchard Foundation has remained behind in Colorado Springs and Briargate, and uh, that's a a foundation that funds ministries in different ways, so we'll get into that later. So that's uh, the CMA. Now, slight change of subject. Before I go into the sermon, I'm going to share this with you. Uh, you know, I have been showing you the maps of the missionary journeys, right? And uh, uh, it's, just, it's gotten kind of interesting because every time I show this, afterwards, Charlie Lane comes up to me and says, you know, when I see these you know, things of Turkey, it reminds me of when I was deployed there, I was stationed there. And the way he does it, it's just, I don't know, it got me kind of suspicious. So... I uh, actually uh, contacted the CIA and I said, there's this guy named Charlie Lane that seems to have some suspicious relationship with Turkey and can you tell me about him? And, and they said, well, yeah, you know, we've actually been concerned about that for quite a while. We've been watching him and we've actually got a few interesting photos of Charlie um, that we've just been trying to figure this out. And so, I mean, these are actual photos. Charlie is a little bit in disguise, but uh, these are photos from the field uh, with Charlie. Uh, there was one of them. and. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what's going on there, but, you know, when you got a West Point graduate, you just don't know. Anyway, uh, there's Charlie as well, and, uh, and this is one of my favorites right there. So <laughs> it brings a whole new meaning to kissing camels, doesn't it? Oh, what can I say? So Charlie, that's for you, brother. <laughs> well, moving on, let's go back to the, uh, the map. So we're on the missionary journeys, at least Paul is, and that's the section we're in here in Acts chapter 14. And on the first missionary journey, he has gone way up uh, into the middle of Asia Minor, also known today as Turkey. and there's this uh, town called Antioch of Pisidia, and where the red uh, line kind of arcs up there at the top, there's got that peak, that's where Antioch is and he's gonna go down then to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and then he'll double back, come to the coast, and then take a boat to Antioch directly. So we're in that section today, that's where we're at. This is an actual photograph of Antioch of Pisidia. It was more of a city, it was more urban at the time compared to some of these other places. That was, those are the remains of the temple of Augustus, Augustus Caesar, you might, may or may not remember from your ancient history, Octavian uh, was adopted by Julius Caesar and became Augustus Caesar. And he was the Caesar, the emperor, when Christ was born, not when Christ died. And in Antioch, they built a temple to him and Paul would have seen it. He would have been there and he would have seen it. So that's Antioch of Pisidia. And that's where we were at the end of chapter 13. And now we're gonna move on. And so if you look at me at Acts chapter 14, and we're gonna have Paul move down the road a bit. So now he's gonna go to Iconium. Um, That's the park that basically that hill is over what was the ancient city of Iconium. So that's the picture we have of it today. So obviously a modern photo, but that's where it would have been. And it's just as an aside, it's fascinating how the ancient cities, including Babylon and Nineveh, uh, the sands of time literally washed over those cities and those cities that were so proud of themselves years ago end up being under the dirt. It's just fascinating. So in chapter 14, verse one, Iconium is on a high plateau. It's kind of a barren area, but at, at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So we see them go to Iconium here. Their pattern we see here, they always go to the synagogue first. They go there and they speak, and it's awesome to see some people receive it and some people, unfortunately, don't. But you have a mixture of Jews and Greeks. When it says Greeks, it's probably God-fearing Gentiles that it's referring to who were coming to the synagogue from superstition or whatever reason, but they would go to the synagogue. And so a great number believed, which is awesome. So in heaven, you'll see your brothers and sisters from Iconium in heaven. Won't that be awesome? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. And the word here for poisoning is to poison um by making somebody think something bad about another person they're poisoning their minds their emotions they get them all riled up so they get the gentiles stirred up against the brothers and so now we have this opposition which is a theme of acts the word goes out and there's always opposition so they remain though for a long time which shows me the courage of the apostles and disciples here that they stay even though there's opposition they don't run in fear Like we would have turned tail and run a lot of times when the opposition hit, but they stay there. But as we see in verse four, the people were divided and this literally in the Greek, uh, is the word for schism. And so there's a schism here because the people of the city split. It sounds kind of like America today with our politics where we are so polarized. But in this case, the city split and there were some with the Jews and some with the apostles. So one thing I know about authorities, uh, whether it's law enforcement or politicians, is they don't like problems. I had a principal of a high school once tell me that. He's like, the thing I don't want is problems. If you can function without bringing me problems, we're great. But if you cause problems, we got a problem. So cities are like that. And so, you know, police or whatever, it's just like, let's just keep it under control. Well, now what's happening is because it's getting stirred up, it's not staying under control. And, uh, and so we got an issue here. Now you will notice, and those of you who were with me this morning in making the Bible come alive in Sunday school, we talked about the beats in the passage. You'll notice here in this passage, you have a step here, then another step, then another step. And we have one right here in verse five. We have a word of timing when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And sometimes what we see is the persecution starts to pop up and they stay. Sometimes the persecution pops up and God directs them to leave. And in this case, they move on. So, you know, it's kind of crazy because Jews and Gentiles didn't necessarily ji-haw well together. And if I can use that theological term, jihad, And they they didn't necessarily like each other. But in this case, they band together against the third party, which is the Christians. So, you know, that's what the apostles had to face. And again, to go back to the map, they were in Antioch. They go to Iconium. Then they go a little further down to the city of Lystra. And Lystra looks like that now. That's the mound or the tell that Lystra is under, the ancient city is actually under that mound or that hill. And that's Lystra and that's where they go. Lystra and Derby were in more rural regions, and it's literally said that they tended to be unlearned areas, people that were not academic, they were unlearned, they were militant, they were uh, intractable, they didn't like to cooperate, they did not like the Romans. They were sources of trouble. And, you know, And I thought about it, I thought, um, I'm not trying to stereotype, but it is kind of true that that is the bad side of the reputation of Appalachia, which I've done a lot of work in. And I mean, to me, Appalachia is a glorious area, but where the Scots-Irish moved in and they were very independent, very self-sufficient, and were not fans of education because that was man's control. They were not fans of government and so on and so forth. And that's the darker side that you see with Appalachia. It's very much like that here in Lystra. So it's different than Antioch. And we see this pattern of God going to different areas, whether it's city or country. Um, and, and, you know, people in the city, they are suspicious of people in the country. And people in the country is like, man, I never want to live in a city. But I'll tell you, I've lived in the Appalachian Mountains in a small town and loved it. And I've lived in the heart of the city of Atlanta and loved it. And the cool thing is I saw God working in both areas. And I think this video today shows us that God is working everywhere. And we'd be better off not picking and choosing the types of areas we like, but to say, God, you're working. Where do you want me to be? How do you want me to serve you and to be involved? Because that's what we see in the book of Acts, right? If anybody wants to say amen, you can say it. God has a heart for all the cultures. There's a great book that was written a number of years ago that God has a heart for the city and he really does and I love that and if you've ever spent time in New York City I love New York City and I love to minister there and it's just awesome to see how God's working. So anyway we see that here now they're going to pop down to Lystra and in chapter 14 verse 8 we're going to have a kind of a familiar scene here. At Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. So he's crippled he's disabled he was crippled from birth and again this sounds a lot like Acts chapter 3 where Peter was at the gate beautiful and found a man who was crippled from birth so it's something we know he's really crippled because he's been that way from birth nobody's faking it this is not like a televangelist no offense to televangelists this man is really crippled he had never walked and everybody knew it and he listened to Paul speaking and apparently he was listening quite closely And Paul, looking intently at him, which, by the way, we've seen this verb several times in Acts already, Uh, and it's interesting to see how it pops up, and Paul is looking intently at him. He's fixating on him, and he's seeing that he had faith to be made well. Paul could tell by how he's listening that this man is positive, he's interested, that God's working there. And Paul said in a loud voice, All right, now you friends of mine who have been in Making the Bible Come Alive, what does it say here? How did he speak it? Stand upright on your feet. Now, it was loud. I won't get too loud, but stand upright on your feet. Paul said it loudly enough for people around to hear. It's interesting that there is a legend in this region that when there is the staring and the speaking loudly, the gods have come to visit So Paul intentionally says, Scripture intentionally tells us it's in a loud voice. Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking, the miracle of coordination. And notice when, the timing here, when the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So the crowd interprets this as, the two major gods have come to be amongst us there is a legend in that area that in ancient history the gods zeus and hermes visited that area and the people are thinking they have returned romans would call them jupiter and mercury but it's basically the same and because paul's speaking they assume that paul is mercury or hermes the messenger god And Barnabas may have been a little older, he may have looked more mature, I don't know, but they assume he's Zeus. And so these guys are all excited because they think these gods have come to visit us. One of my very, very favorite movies is based on a Rudyard Kipling story, The Man Who Would Be King. Anybody familiar with that? So you have these two British soldiers who desert, this is somewhere near Afghanistan, but you know, in the 1800s, and they desert the army, and they want to go exploit a local people and get rich. And so they do that and they go to this extremely remote area. And I'll tell you a little bit, but I won't give you the ending of it. Sean Connery is one of the guys, Michael Caine is the other. And Sean Connery, the character, gets hit in the chest with an arrow. Well, he happens to be wearing leather and the natives don't realize that. And he gets hit and the arrow sticks there and he doesn't die. So they think he's a god. And for a while it goes really well for him uh, it's just an amazing kind of poetic justice kind of movie. It's pretty amazing. But I think about that because it, but what they were told was Alexander the Great had been there in the 300s BC and it told them that I will go, but someday my descendant will return. And they thought he was Alexander the Great's descendant. So we have kind of a similar situation here where the local people look at Paul and Barnabas and they think they're gods. And I love Paul's reaction and Barnabas' reaction here uh, because verse 13, the priest of Zeus even comes out whose temple was at the entrance to the city and he brought oxen and garlands to the gates and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They were ready to sacrifice to these guys. But I love the reaction in verse 14 when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their garments, which means that they were hearing blasphemy satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. The people were determined to sacrifice to them. They were determined. They were gods. Well, I'll tell you the first thing is I love Paul's reaction in Barnabas as well. They don't want to have anything to do with that idea. They are humble. Now, you know, some people will be like, yeah, yeah, well, thank you, you know, for acknowledging that, uh, but I'm not. But Paul and Barnabas immediately tried to shoot down the idolatry. Uh, that's one of the things that's been difficult for me, and Susie as well, is when I've spoken in Asia and South Asia and areas there, um, they're very respectful of the people speaking, and they'll put a 15-pound garland of flowers around your neck, and they call it uh, felicitating That's what they do. And so you're speaking there. You got all these flowers. Well, I don't want that. Don't dare do that. But that to them is honoring the speaker. I'm like, I'm a man just like you. God's given me gifts, you know, and all that. And he's we're using them here. But please don't elevate me like that. And they felt the same way. And they responded that way. Uh, Susie can tell you ask her after the service. Yeah, it kind of drives us crazy. But I understand the culture still. And Paul tells them, look, God's reached out to you uh, in his common grace to give you the reins and so on, but we're not God. Respond to God himself. And they insist on being idolatrous. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. And Calvin was so right about that. And we get superior and say, we don't have idols, but i tell you we do. And I do and you do. And we make them constantly. And God is always squishing that out of us. But here the unbelievers are just going after the idolatry. So Paul and Barnabas are left with the situation. And then now it's going to get worse in verse 19. Some time passes after verse 18. Apparently things calm down. But in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You know, there's a lot of irony in here because frankly, this is what Paul was going to do when he went to Damascus as Saul. He was gonna do that to the church. Well, now the tables are turned. Well, this is interesting because it says, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. So here's your question. If they supposed he was dead, how, I don't wanna say stoned in Colorado, I don't want to come across wrong. How knocked out was Paul? Knocked out enough that they would think he was dead. And they dragged him out of the city. It was that bad. But ironically, when the disciples, when they gathered around him praying, I'm sure, he bounced up. He rose up and entered the city. He goes right back into the city. Such courage. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. This is an aside. This is interesting. I don't know if you've heard this or you believe it or not, uh, that this is your perspective. There is a theory that Paul actually was killed with the stoning. Have you all heard this? Okay. The idea was that he was killed. Now, whether that happened or not, only God knows. But it's an interesting theory because people will connect it with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I've just put that up here. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says... I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, which is his humble way of saying it was me, but I don't want the credit. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Now that's pretty much saying it was me. Third heaven, what does that tell you? Third heaven. Well, there must be a first and a second. And so the theory is that, it's a theory that the atmosphere is first heaven, the space is second heaven, and third heaven would be God's throne room and all the attendant uh, features of that. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise and that would be what paradise is. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And now, based on that, we have this amazing passage that you know. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. And Paul prayed three times to be uh, relieved from that, that it should leave me. But God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that famous verse has the context of Paul possibly going to heaven and possibly being connected with the stoning in Lystra that had actually killed him and then God brought him back to life. Now, I cannot prove that, but I've had that theory taught enough. That it's just kind of fascinating to consider. One way or the other, though, God gave Paul revelation that was special for whatever reason, for what he needed to know for the church. But he said, Paul, I'm going to tell this to you, but you can't share it, so you won't find it like in the book of Fourth Corinthians. And there is not. We know of three Corinthians. There's a middle Corinthian, but, but Paul never wrote it. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, that I am strong. Paul was beaten. He was whipped. He was stoned, shipwrecked. Staggering what that man went through. Just absolutely staggering. So he goes down to Derby, and that's Derby today. You can see it's a remote area, and there's the tell, the mound of Derby. And when, verse 21, they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Notice the bravery. The areas that had stoned Paul and opposed him, he went back through. That's amazing. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, that's why he did it. Encouraging them to continue the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And don't miss this in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the pattern is Paul would lead Boldly preach the gospel, lead people to Christ, Jew and Gentile. He would leave them with leadership. He appointed elders. They would have local leaders. And they would also have prayer and fasting. So they were spiritually founded. And and never forget that. So now we get into the uh, concept of elders in the early church because the apostles will die out, but they appoint elders for leadership. And let's finish it out then. Um, in verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia, working their way back to Antioch and Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch. There's Perga. Those tall towers were there during the time of Paul. And there is the first century pier in Ataliah. That's actually where they sailed from. Isn't that cool? And from there they sailed to Antioch, verse 26, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. God's moving this forward, it's not them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and there they remained. Look at the timing, no little time with the disciples. And one of the reasons they stayed there was because this whole thing about Gentiles coming to Christ directly and not going through Judaism would cause a near schism in the church. And it would cause such an issue that they had to have a council to discuss it as the early church. And what was at stake was whether the gospel would be purely presented to mankind from then on. Do not underestimate the Jerusalem council. So they put up their round tables. They hashed it out. And we will look at that next Sunday. Father, thank you so much for all you do. And thank you for your gospel. And I thank you so much for Paul and Barnabas, the incredible faith, the incredible courage, the boldness, how we could learn from them. I thank you that they touched the cities in the country. There wasn't a place they were not willing to go. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. Weather was good, weather was bad. Opposition was there, people received. But in all things, they learned how to be content Because you took them as human stones and you gradually produced diamonds of the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.